This is the Malaya Movement Podcast. As of the 21st of uh, this month, I signed Proclamation Number 1081, placing the entire Philippines under martial law. This uh, proclamation was uh, to be implemented upon my clearance, and clearance was granted at uh, 9 o'clock in the evening of the 22nd, last night. I have uh, proclaimed martial law in accordance with the powers vested in the President by the Constitution of the Philippines. On September 21, 1972, Dictator Ferdinand Marcos declared martial law in the Philippines, beginning one of the darkest periods in Philippine history. Marcos signed Proclamation 1081, placing the entire Philippines under martial law. Curfew, military rule, warrantless arrest, political imprisonment, torture, killings, disappearances, suppression of the media, elimination of democratic institutions, and civil liberties of the people. These conditions sound all too familiar in the present day under President Duterte. At the onset of his presidency, Duterte has facilitated the rise of the Marcoses back into power and has stolen moves straight from the Marcos playbook and crafted his own to solidify his own dictatorship. History rhymes and repeats itself. Virtue of the powers vested in me by the Constitution and by law, I had to declare martial law in the Mindanao group of islands for a period that exceeding 60 days, effective as of May 23, 2017. The privilege of the writ of habeas corpus is likewise suspended in the opposite area for the duration of martial law. Once order is restored, and if upon the advice of the military and the police, who in the first place gave me the reason to declare martial law, they gave me sufficient information, I will declare the suspension of the writ of previous court. And I will arrest all of you. I will declare a revolutionary war until the end of my term. And yet, all over the country, you see a systematic campaign to destroy the reform movement. And also, there has come a partnership between the oligarchs and the communists of this country. Very straight. Our answer to this is Reform, yes, because we stood on reform, what we ran in 1969. Change, yes, not the status quo, but revolutionary change. Reform, yes, revolutionary reform, yes, but not revolution. I never said I will declare martial law, kasi martial law, para lang yan sa mga rebelde. Para sa mga komunista. Now, let me be very clear on this. If itong lawlessness, 
which has imposed on us by the NPAs for the longest time, 53 years, baski sa ang probinsya may NPA. Because if I did not believe, believe in democracy, it would have been easy for me to declare martial law. I have the power under the Constitution and you know it. I have the power to declare martial law because there is existing actually and presently a serious danger to our Republic. And therefore, I ask my friends of the Communist Party not to test our strength because we have the strength. They think that they are uh, a different breed. Uh, they would like to be treated with another set of law. When, as a matter of fact, they are terrorists. They are terrorists because we... Uh, I finally declared them to be one. I am afraid that ultimately this hunger will control this country and we may end up in a dictatorship of the military. Because the strongest arm in the country today is the military. There is no organization stronger than the armed forces of the Philippines. Uh, there seems to be the environment of lawlessness, lawless violence uh, in this country. So I might just uh, declare a state of lawless violence in this country. It's not martial law, but I am inviting now the armed forces of the Philippines, the military and the police to run the country in accordance with my specifications. In Marcos's 21-year rule, democracy in the Philippines was utterly destroyed and the republic fell to its knees. The scars from that time are still painful and visceral for Filipinos everywhere, most especially now under Duterte. This September marks the 48th anniversary of Marcos's declaration of martial law. To remember the blood, sweat, tears, and resistance of the Filipino people under Marcos, Malaya Movement Northeast is releasing two new podcasts this September, on the 14th and 21st for Malaya Mondays, reflecting on Marcos's martial law era. For today's episode, we will explore the history of martial law under Marcos and draw parallels and connections to today under Duterte. Why was martial law declared? What were the political and economic context that led to the declaration of martial law, and how did the Philippine government justify itself? What were the lasting impacts of over 20 years of martial law, and how did the people react and fight back? There are many myths and misconceptions about the presidency of Ferdinand Marcos. Those who support or are sympathetic to Marcos's new society and martial law will claim that the Philippine economy was the strongest it ever was during that period, or that it was one of the peaceful and prosperous times in Philippine history. However, an analysis of true conditions of this era, as well as its lasting impacts on Philippine society, will reveal that this is nothing more than historical revisionism, and that history reveals that martial law was a period of political corruption, economic instability, and human rights abuses, and widespread social unrest. In his declaration of martial law, in the midst of the Cold War, Fernand Marcos blamed social unrest and the rise of the communist movement, namely the Communist Party of the Philippines and the New People's Army, or the CPBNPA, and various student mass organizations on the increasingly unstable political situation in the Philippines. 
Marcus accused the communists for terrorist attacks in Manila, including the bombing of Plaza Miranda in 1971, and cited them as a reason to declare martial law, including an assassination attempt on Defense Minister Juan Ponce Enrile, of which was later admitted to be staged. Fernand Marcos also justified the declaration of martial law by asserting that it was a power vested to him by the Constitution of the Philippines. However, Proclamation 1081 was not merely a response to mass movements and uprisings, but a result of many political moves made by Fernand Marcos in a consolidation of power and extension of his presidency, supporting U.S. interests in the Philippines to extend the superpower's economic, political, and social, and cultural control over the archipelago and the midst of the Red Scare and McCarthyism during the Cold War. Marcos's martial law would lead to a sharp increase of human rights abuses by his regime that violated the Constitution. In The Conjugal Dictatorship, journalist and Marcos whistleblower Primitivo Mejares writes, quote, Marcos did not panic into dictatorship. Weeks before Marcos rang the curtain down on democracy in the Philippines, the whiff of revolution was sharp and unmistakable. Marcos had laid the foundations for martial law from the beginning of his presidency. Notably, in his first term, he had appointed himself Minister of National Defense. He also appointed 8 out of 11 Supreme Court justices, and he was also accused of election fraud and corruption during his second term. At the beginning of his second term, the political atmosphere was growing tense. Throughout the 60s, the Philippines had growing debt and inflation, and accusations of corruption of the Marcos regime and the influence of U.S. imperialism on the Philippines reached a point of heightened struggle in the 1970s culminating the first quarter storm. The first quarter storm was a series of protests and mass movements in the first several months of the year that mobilized dozens, if not hundreds of thousands of people to take action and organize against the worsening socio-political conditions, inspiring many, from urban workers to college activists, from young professionals in Metro Manila to the peasant workers in the countryside. Rising fascism and corruption in the government and the consolidation of U.S. imperialism in the Philippines was being challenged and the Marcos regime viewed it as a threat. Prior to martial law, the Philippine economy was on the decline. The Philippine peso devalued by around 40% by the early 1970s and conditions were worsening for the poor in urban communities and in the countryside. At the time martial law was declared, and in the decade following, the Philippines was the largest borrower of loans from the IMF and the World Bank in Asia. And Marcos would use these loans for capitalist modernization and development and land reform. In a Rappler article titled, How the Marcos World Bank Partnership Brought the Philippine Economy to Its Knees, published in April 2, 2019, even as the regime's official rhetoric painted the regime as a developmental state, the reality was that it was turning into what Peter Evans called the predatory state, where, as in Mobutu Zaire's, the whole state apparatus was being turned into a mechanism for ruthlessly extracting resources by the president and his cronies without offering anything of value in return. Marcos would push the Philippines into economic decline, sinking the country into $25 billion of debt that is still being paid off to this day. 
From an article by the Ibun Foundation, they noted that the decade of 1975 to 1986 was actually an intense time of social crisis and economic difficulty for most Filipinos. So we can note that the unemployment rate was falling in the early years of the Marcos regime, and already the prices of goods and services soared with an inflation rate of 6.8% in 1975 and almost doubled to 12.1% in 1980. So when martial law was officially declared, A couple of things happened. One, parliament was suspended and the military officers were placed in high positions of power. Two, opposition leaders and critics were arrested or removed from their positions. Three, the largest media network in the country, ABS-CBN, was shut down and there was widespread media censorship. Four, mass arrests of activist leaders took place. According to the government's own estimates, approximately 30,000 individuals were arrested immediately following the declaration of martial law. The United States supported Marcos's decision to enact military rule. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce had even sent a telegram to Marcos congratulating him on his decision and wishing him success with martial law. The new society that Marcos had strived to build focused on neoliberal free market reforms that would benefit U.S.-based conglomerates in the Philippines. So no wonder they were happy. U.S. military aid to the Philippines increased by approximately 100% in the first five years of martial law. As survivors continued to assert, the Marcos regime was known to commit countless human rights violations in their treatment of political prisoners, where there was a system of mass incarceration and widespread systemic torture. An Amnesty International report on the Philippines made in 1975 found countless instances of torture and human rights abuses towards prisoners. So after three years of martial law, the vast majority of political prisoners were arrested under the suspicion of being activist quote-unquote subversives, and many were accused of being involved in the armed struggle with the New People's Army or the Moro National Liberation Front. Upwards of 100% of the detainees were never charged with a crime or even faced trial. By the 1980s, instances of torture of political prisoners would increase to over 35,000 affected and approximately 3,500 known extrajudicial killings. Despite the increased repression and state violence, the Filipino people continued to resist the regime. Students, peasants, labor unions, urban professionals, and others continued to organize against the Marcos regime. The increased repression by the state was met with increased resistance by the people. The role of activists of those in the Philippines, as well as Filipinos living abroad, especially in the U.S., was vital to the ouster of Marcos. The human rights abuses committed by Marcos, the fraud and corruption, and the increasingly worsening conditions of Philippine society garnered international attention. Opposition parties united against Marcos and support for the regime dwindled. The U.S. actually supported Senator Nino Aquino and pressed for his release from prison. Later, Aquino would reside in exile in the United States in Boston. However, upon his return to the Philippines with the intention of running for election, Senator Aquino was assassinated by gunshot to the head in 1983, right on the tarmac of the international airport. This would spark a series of protests that would later become the EDSA People Power Uprising. The EDSA People Power Uprising was a number of mass risings and protests by the millions in 1986 that led to the ouster of Marcos. <laughs> Oh, my God.
protesters chant, Marcos was a dictator, not a hero, at a rally at the University of the Philippines de Laman on November 18, 2016. Duterte was the very first president to facilitate and oversee to completion Marcos's burial at the Hero Cemetery. Barely a month into his term, Duterte gave the order to bury Marcos there, inciting sharp criticism and mass protests. However, Duterte had the backing of the Supreme Court, and just like that, nearly three decades after the late dictator's death, the deed was done. The Marcos family's long-standing wish for Ferdinand to be laid to rest in the Hero Cemetery was paramount to restoring their pathway to political legitimacy and power on a national scale. Moves to bury the late dictator at the Hero Cemetery had been either blocked or cancelled by former presidents due to fierce criticism by survivors of Marcos's martial law, human rights activists, and various government officials years after Marcos's ouster. His burial sparked outrage and debates across the country on the historical revisionism, that is, the erasure of the atrocities of Ferdinand Marcos's dictatorship, propagated by Duterte, the Marcos family, and their supporters. Let's explore the specific ways in which Duterte has facilitated the rehabilitation of the Marcoses. The relationship between these two political dynasties, the Dutertes and the Marcoses, actually goes back decades. And as Philippine politics goes, it is rife with contradictions. So Duterte's father was in Marcos's cabinet during the late dictator's first term, while his mother was a known leader in Davao and the anti-Marcos movement during martial law. Throughout Duterte's political career and his own presidential campaign, he played both sides according to what would be most opportunistic for him in the moment. For example, one of Duterte's biggest campaign contributors in 2016 was a Marcos crony, Antonio Floriando Jr., and one of the leaders of ALDA, a group that campaigned in 2016 for a Duterte-Bongbong-Marcos tandem for president and vice president. While Duterte accepted such donations on one hand, he also courted the left and swing liberals, often using his mother's activism and his own youthful stint in progressive groups to sway them. Truly in the style of an opportunist politician. However, following Marcos's controversial burial in 2016, the political alliance between the Dutertes and Marcos's became even more visible and crystal clear. So leading up to the May 2019 midterm elections in the Philippines, Duterte's daughter, Sarah Duterte, forged a nine-party alliance with Ferdinand Marcos's daughter, Aimee Marcos. This super coalition, called Hukbong ng Pagbabago, or HNP, pledged to support their members gunning for the Senate at that time, all of whom vowed to support Duterte until the end of his term in 2022. Nine out of the 12 seats that were up for grabs was won by the HNP senatorial bets. Out of these included Aimee Marcos, the daughter of Ferdinand. This crucial win of Duterte Yes Men and Yes Women, as well as quite a few Marcos apologists, handed the Senate over to Duterte. The Duterte-Marcos alliance continues to protect and rehabilitate the Marcoses. There are so many examples of this. In 2018, the Sandigan Bayan, a special court, found former First Lady Imelda Marcos guilty of graft and corruption. This was in connection to her offshore bank accounts related to the seven private organizations that she illegally created in Switzerland while sitting in public office during her husband's regime. She was found guilty for seven counts of violation of the Anti-Graft and Corruption Practices Act, and she was sentenced to a maximum prison sentence of 11 years. 
But despite being charged guilty for two years now, law enforcement authorities under Duterte have yet to arrest Imelda, apparently due to her health and age. She continues to roam free, and together with her children, they enjoy the good graces and support of Duterte. Such Duterte-Marcos political ties are paralleled by Duterte stealing authoritarian moves right out of Marcos's playbook and designing his own. Both have crafted legal means to be able to commit systematic abuses. Marcos issued thousands of presidential decrees during martial law. Presidential decrees were a political tool invited by Marcos. One he made to take up the lawmaking powers of Congress. Many remain law in the Philippines to this day. Duterte, from the executive branch, issued various policies to institutionalize counterinsurgency programs and curtailment of civil liberties. He declared his own martial law in Mindanao from 2017 to 2019 and issued de facto martial law policies of Executive Order 70, Memorandum 32, and most recently signed into law, the Anti-Terror Act, which former Supreme Court Justice J.P. Carpio asserted to put the Philippines in a condition worse than martial law. Both dictators heavily invested government resources in counterinsurgency programs to quell critics, groups they have labeled as terrorists, as well as cultivating a military junta in their cabinets and appointments, and both waged their own war on drugs. Both have attacked the freedom of the press with attacks and murders of journalists. The Philippines' largest media conglomerate, ABS-CBN, was shut down by Duterte earlier this year. It was the first time that the network was forced off air since Marcos's declaration of martial law in 1972. Both have not shied away from blatant attacks on political opponents, such as the assassination of Senator Nino Aquino on the part of Marcos and the jailing of Senator Lila de Lima on the part of Duterte. When weighing these dictatorships, the Filipino people cannot forget that under Marcos's 21-year rule, the dictator was responsible for 70,000 political detainees, 34,000 people tortured, and 3,240 deaths under Marcos. Such fascist state terror and grave human rights abuses have not returned to such levels in the Philippines until Duterte came to power. The country is saturated in the people's blood at the machinations of Duterte's state terror through systematic extrajudicial killings and assassinations. In Duterte's so-called war on drugs, the Philippine National Police have formally claimed to have killed over 8,000 Filipinos, primarily from the urban poor sector. However, human rights groups estimate the number to be closer to 30,000 extrajudicial killings. The aftermath of Duterte's martial law in Mindanao from 2017 to 2019, in the wake of the Marawi siege, has left over 70,000 people still displaced three years later. Indigenous people continue to face massive abuses as the government targets their ancestral lands ripe with rich natural resources to sell out to corporations. In 2018, the Philippines was the deadliest country in Asia for land and environmental activists. By the end of last year, 113 environmental activists were killed since Duterte assumed office while over 200 farmers have been killed in relation to land disputes. Activists continue to be red-tagged, a form of political harassment in which authorities label individuals as leftists and communists in order to justify the license to kill with impunity. Like Marcos, Duterte has justified violence and state-sanctioned terror on activists by using communists as a straw man. In 2017, Duterte officially declared the Communist Party of the Philippines as a terrorist organization after shutting down peace talks. He soon after vowed to target legal organizations he claimed were communist fronts and ordered the military to destroy these organizations, quote unquote, and if they have to kill, do it. Duterte's counterinsurgency programs, similar to administrations before him, are modeled after those of Marcos and copy and paste red scare rhetoric and propaganda from the Cold War. 
The Commission on Human Rights in the Philippines recently reported that at least 134 human rights defenders have been killed since 2016. This number has only increased with the recent assassinations of urban poor and housing rights activist Carlito Badion, political activist Jory Pokia, peace advocate Randy Enchanis, and human rights defender Zara Alvarez, all of whom experienced harassment and intensified repression from the state through red tagging. Earlier this month, the House of Representatives, filled with Duterte supporters, voted to name September 11th for the non-Marcos Day, a non-working holiday on the birthday of the late dictator. To honor a fascist dictator who has caused generations of suffering and hardship for the Filipino people does not deserve such recognition. It is an insult. The Filipino people have continued to fight against such historical revisionism. Marcos is no hero. The memories, lived experiences, and past and present resistance of the Filipino people remain a ray of hope amidst the darkness that Duterte has returned to the Philippines. The people know the truth and will continue to fight for justice. Marcos is not a hero. Never again to martial law. Never again, never forget. At the end of this episode, we leave you with an old protest song from Marcos's martial law era. This is called Awat ng Menjiola, or Song of Menjiola. Menjiola is a street in Manila that leads to Malacanang, where the president resides. Historically, it's been a meeting point for activists and a place for rallies, rife with violent confrontations with state forces. It continues to be a symbol of resistance and the fight for freedom. We will play the song and close with a reading of the lyrics translated into English.
Song of Minjolo It is heaven to live in one's homeland. If the people have freedom, morning is a poetry of joy, and dusk a song if you listen. But why, mother country, do you wear a blindfold, your mouth sealed and ears covered, your hands still bound by fetters of old, seeking liberation on the street of Manjola? Night shall end in dawn. Life shall be born from a mother's tear. The children of the country, with arms entwined, are determined to fight the greedy. Their fists are clenched in protest. A hundred thousand of your children cry in defiance. The heart throbs with love of country. To die for her is bliss, so that she may be free. Thank you for listening. Check out our next episode, which will be released on September 21, the Martial Law Declaration anniversary, and will focus on the people's resistance against Marcos's fascist dictatorship. Tell us your martial law stories. You can get in touch by following us on Instagram at malaya.northeast. If you want to learn more about the Malaya movement, visit www.malayamovement.com. This is the Malaya Movement Northeast podcast, and thanks again for listening.